I was just thinking, Pete, you should, um, should go into business as writing very modest book blurbs on the back of books. The book of Jonah. It's only, it's only four chapters. One of them is just a prayer. Another one's only ten verses. <laughs> there we go. Um, well, that's it. There should be more of that around. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, okay, this morning... Uh, We are returning again wonderfully to the book of Colossians. We're going to be looking at Colossians 1, verses 18 to 20. And uh, this week, the title of this morning's message, and I promise this isn't isn't just a lazy adaptation of last week, but this week it's called The Supreme Sufficiency of Christ in His Church. Last week we looked at the supreme sufficiency of Christ in the world. This week it's his supreme sufficiency in his church. And let's read from verse 15 again, just so we get the context. But it's 18 to 20 that we're focusing on today. So from verse 15. He, as Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So last week we saw in the first half of those verses we just read the supreme sufficiency of Christ in the world. We saw that he created and reigns over all things over everything that ever has been or ever will be, and that in him all things are moment by moment sustained and held together. That he essentially writes the word mine on everything that exists in all of creation. But all of that raises an important question, and maybe this question even came to your mind last week or over the uh, last few days as you pondered what we heard. If everything is Christ's, if it all belongs to him, why doesn't he fix what's gone wrong with it? Why doesn't he set about mending all that's been broken? All of us, almost all of us, I'm sure, know what it is to own something in need of mending. Whether you've got a, uh, a broken watch or a car or your whole house or a light or a leaky gutter, whatever it might be. Perhaps a backlog of things immediately come to your mind now as I talk about broken things. Things that you're aware you really ought to get around to fixing. And most of us can probably relate to the temptation to just ignore or give up on it, on that thing, rather than actually put in the hard work of repairing it. Uh, Whether because it's frustrating to try and fix it, or it's just easy to ignore it, or because the enormity of the task is overwhelming, it's just easy to give up on these kind of things, isn't it? To turn a blind eye to things that are broken and in need of mending. But what about God? What does God do when he sees his broken, 
messed up and decaying creation. A creation that's been messed up, of course, by the very people that he created and made to steward it for him. Messed up by our sin and the curse that resulted from our rebellion. How does God respond when he sees just how messed up things have become? Now, he could just demolish it and do away with it. He would be well within his rights. It would be just of him to do just that, to do away with the world that we have ruined. And yet that's not what God chooses to do. Wonderfully, from the moment mankind first sinned and brought ruin into God's good and perfect creation, God set in motion the most awesome rescue plan to rescue and restore and renew all things. And here in verses 18 to 20, our passage for today, Paul wants to remind the Colossians that not only is God's plan to mend and renew creation utterly centered, just like last time, on the person and work of Christ, but also his plan is already mightily in motion. And the proof that this new creation work has already started is to be found in a really surprising location. Prepare yourself for this. Because the divine foundations have been laid, the scaffolding is up, the building work is underway, the starting point of the new creation is present for all to see in the church. It's in the church. To which our gut reaction might be to say, as we look at ourselves and we look around at... No, don't look around at one another now, it would be too obvious. But as we look at one another, we might say... Oh dear. It's rather like being told a grand old manor house needs to be replaced, which granted is turning to rack and ruin and is a bit of a death trap, but only to be presented with what looks like an unimpressive garden shed and told that this is the proposed replacement. The, the church is the first evidence of the new creation, we think. Are, are we sure there's not some kind of mistake here? Because it doesn't look very impressive. And yet that is indeed what Paul is saying here. That we, the church, God's people, are already the first fruits of a newly restored creation to come. And that becomes even clearer when you, if you begin to spot the deliberate parallels between this week's passage and last week's. Verses 18 to 20 deliberately echo many of the same words and phrases as 15 to 17. So if you have a look down, you'll see firstborn in both places, all things, heaven and earth, through him. But this time, those words are applied not to the created world that's out there that we can see out through the windows and that is all around us, but it refers to the church, we people in here. In the words of one writer, Mark Maynell, just as Jesus made the cosmos, so Jesus made the church. And the implication, therefore, is that the church is the starting point for God's new creation. Its very existence assures us that everything will be remade, restored, renewed. So there is a mighty honor that is bestowed on us as members of God's people and as members of his church. We are the first outpost of a new world that is to come. We are the first fruits of a promised new creation. There is no mistake here. 
to which our next gut instinct response might well be then, how can we possibly be a part of this? It's hard enough working on the upkeep of my car or my house or my office. How can we be all that we're meant to be as a church? Shouldn't we be doing a whole lot more than we're doing? Shouldn't we be pursuing a lot more than we are and seeking more fullness than we have so far? It's likely that that's what the very thing that the Colossians were concerned with and worrying about too. Don't we need more than we already have, they thought, in order to fulfill such a grand purpose? Don't we need more than we have right now in order to really grow? But Paul's simple answer, as we're going to see this morning, to all these concerns, all of our concerns and the Colossians' concerns, is this. Jesus. Just Jesus. All that we need is in Him. All that we need to be who we're called to be. All that we need to live life together as the outpost of the coming new creation is found in Him. The church belongs to Him. And so he is all that we need. And in order to convince us of that fact, Paul lays out three reasons in these three verses as to why Christ is supremely sufficient for us as a church. Three reasons why he is all that we need. And they are, firstly, Christ is God over us. Secondly, Christ is God with us. And thirdly, Christ is God for us. So, First of all, Christ is God over us. This is in verse 18. Let's read that verse again. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now the Bible, as you probably know, is filled with all sorts of metaphors used to describe the church. The church is a family and a flock, a kingdom and a building, a vineyard and a bride. But I think one of the most profound of them all is the picture of the church as being a body, a group of people inseparably joined together in living union with Christ as the head. And this picture of Christ being the head of the body that Paul is painting here speaks first and foremost of his supreme authority. The church is not a many-headed hydra like the monster that's described in the Greek myths. I think Hercules went and fought the hydra and chopped off all its heads. The church doesn't need a hydra. A, it doesn't need many heads. It doesn't need a pope or many intermediary lords and priests and rulers. Let's just be clear, as pastors, Pete and I aren't the heads of this church. Everyone says, praise the Lord. It's not our church, it's Christ's church. We're all members together of his body. Christ alone is our head. He alone has authority, divine authority, to govern and direct us as his body. We take our direction from him. This also means we don't need the most impressive and charismatic and mighty human leaders in order to be the church. And that's good news as well because we haven't got them. But it's all okay because we've got Christ as God over us. He is supremely sufficient. And the place, according to verse 18, where God has most vividly demonstrated Christ's supreme sufficiency, his preeminence over the church, is in his resurrection. 
He is the beginning, says Paul, the firstborn from the dead. Uh, And we, we did this already last week. We saw the word firstborn. And just as before, this isn't a reference to being first in time. Christ wasn't the first person to rise from the dead. Sometimes we forget that. He himself raised others. He raised Lazarus from the dead before his own death and resurrection. So it's not that he's the first person to rise from the dead. But again, firstborn refers to his rank and his importance, to the unique significance of his resurrection. Christ was the first person to rise, never to die again. The first person to conquer death and so make a way for countless others as well to be eternally raised with him. If Christ had not risen, there would be no resurrection for his people. But he has risen And in so doing, he is the beginning of this new creation, a new humanity raised to resurrection life in him. He's the one who gives life to the dead and who has already breathed new resurrection life into his people, into us. If our trust is in him and in his death on our behalf, one day we will be physically raised just as he was with brand new bodies to live in a brand new creation with him. And yet, even now, we have the first fruits of this resurrection life. Because already, he's become our head and we have become his body. His life flows down into his people. Once we were dead in our sins, but now God has made us alive together with him. You know, this verse verse in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, a glorious verse. If anyone is in Christ, he is already a new creation. So, uh, let's think for a moment about what it means that Christ is our head. What does it mean that he's God over his church? What that teaches us about his supreme sufficiency for us as a church and about his being everything that we need to live life together as his people. Okay, so what does a head do? There's lots of things a head does. Think about what your head does for all the other parts of your body. Uh, among all the things that your head does, it, it includes, it, it cares lovingly and wisely for the other members, the parts of your body. Your head feeds the body and clothes the body. It guides your body and it protects your body. And that's precisely what Jesus, our head, has promised to do for his body, the church. And we see this in uh, Colossians 2, verse 19, that it's from Jesus, our head, that the whole body of God's people, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So when the Colossians begin to ask, is it possible that we might need more than Christ alone? More than He can give us? Well, Paul reminds them, no, on the contrary, God the Father has specifically made Christ the head and therefore the one in whom the church will find absolutely everything it needs to grow and flourish. We're not meant to ever graduate or move on from Jesus. If we do try to move on or if we allow ourselves just to drift away over time, Well, you've only got to think about what would happen if your own physical body became detached from your head or slowly drifted away from your head. It isn't pretty, and it doesn't end happily. Just think about the uh, the headless horseman or 
nearly headless Nick. He wasn't very happy. Uh, no body can ultimately survive when once it has lost his head. And yet, sadly, some Christians and some churches try. Dick Lucas writes, It is very possible for a church not to hold fast to Christ as head and thus to cut itself off from the essential nourishment that makes for proper growth. Our present passage implies that this will happen when Christ is not given the preeminent place that is rightfully his. God's call to us as a church then is clear. We must hold fast to Christ as our head, to recognize in all that we do his preeminence and to rely on his supremacy and sufficiency, to be together looking to him and trusting in him and striving to grow down deeper into him, to be as a church centered on Christ in all that we do together. But can we be sure he's enough? Even if Christ is God over us, how can we be certain that he's completely sufficient to give us everything that as a church we'll ever need to grow? Well, Paul carries on reassuring us in the Colossians, not only is he God over us, he's also, now Paul goes on to explain, God with us as well. This is verse 19, our, and our second heading this morning, Christ is God with us. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Uh, quite simply, Christ is God. Come in all of his fullness to dwell with us. And maybe you recognize this fullness language. It's not new. In the Old Testament, it was used to describe God filling the temple with his presence. So in Ezekiel 44, verse 4, Ezekiel announces, I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Or think of Isaiah's famous vision in Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then Isaiah's words of shock and awe just a few verses later as he exclaims, My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But all of those were just foreshadowings, just looking forward to an even greater dwelling place on earth for God to come. Because now we're being told here in Colossians chapter 1, all of the fullness of God was ultimately pleased to dwell in Christ. The glory of the Lord fills Jesus to overflowing. It's the train of his robe that, if you like, fills the temple. And the whole earth is now filled with his glory so that we too, if we've come to know Jesus, can say with Isaiah, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Because when we have Christ, we have all of God clothed in human flesh. He is fully God. All of God's fullness resides in Christ. He is the complete embodiment of all of God's attributes and all of God's saving grace. Kent Hughes writes, this means that we need look to no one except Jesus for the full revelation of God's character. 
if God could only be perceived in closely reasoned theological language, only the most brilliant could understand him. But the fullness was in Christ. And all we have to do is look at him. As we see him in the Gospels and hear him preached, we can know what God is like. And then, look again, notice the pleasure that God takes in this. It's always so important to spot the things that God says he's particularly pleased with. And here we're told all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. When God is pleased, he is well pleased. This is not like when you buy your dad some socks at Christmas and he's sort of mildly pleased. And uh, he tries to say thank you. No, God was overjoyed to have all of his fullness dwell in Christ and overjoyed to have Christ be the one in whom we can come face to face with God's all-sufficient fullness. Paul wants that reality to recenter and strengthen the Colossians' gaze on Christ. Because clearly some of them were beginning to get itchy feet, wondering if Maybe they ought to move forward or move on or move up the ladder a few more steps to move on from plain, simple dependence on Christ. They were beginning to think they might need some new fullness. Some new fullness to make up for what was lacking in Jesus. Like, a bit like when you take a water bottle and it's almost full and you say, no, I need to add a little bit more because I want it to be completely full. I've been uh, filling... Uh, old plastic bottles this week, don't know if you've been doing something similar, uh, to pour over the windows of my car. Now, rest assured, it's been very lukewarm. I haven't cracked any windows yet. But I don't know if you found this. The ice has been so thick this week and so hard to get off the car. And the air is still so cold. And so I'm making doubly sure that the bottles are filled to the very brim before I put on my coat and I venture outside into the Arctic conditions. And sometimes I've got halfway to the front door before turning back to the sink again because I've decided, although these bottles are pretty full, they still need topping up a bit more to be really full. And I need as much fullness as I can to de-ice the windows of my car. What Paul wants us to grasp here in verse 19 is that when you get Christ, you get God full to the brim. We get everything of God in Christ. There is no more that could be added. There is no need to seek greater fullness anywhere else than in him. As Dick Lucas puts it, for Paul, there was nothing whatever of the Godhead that was not in Christ. The full complement of divine attributes is to be found in him. But for the new teachers, he's talking about false teachers sort of moving around Colossae, Union with Christ did not of itself bring anyone into such fullness of divine life. There was still room and need for a supplementary work of God. This could be thought of by saying that God has still more of himself to give than Christ, or that Christ was not received in all his fullness at conversion. However this was thought of, for Paul it represented a serious misunderstanding. The work of the teacher is to lead people to find their fullness in Christ alone. He, the teacher, does not possess anything beyond Christ to give to his people. This is so true and so important. 
Pete and I, as pastors, have nothing else to give to you than Christ. Nowhere else to lead you for more fullness than to the absolute fullness that God has already made available to his church in Christ. The same is true of our home group leaders. Their overarching job is to lead us continually back to Christ. It's the same for our children's ministry leaders. Uh, Have you ever asked yourself, what are they doing out there on a Sunday morning? They've closed the blinds this morning, in fact, so we can't quite see what's going on. But maybe you've looked in before. Uh, I tell you, they're doing a fantastic job. That's the first thing I'll say. Uh, And they might be playing games and making things as well as singing and teaching too. But it's all ultimately shaped and crafted and put together to help the children do one thing. And that is to discover that all the fullness of God is already there, waiting for them in Christ. And that all they need to do with their young lives is to receive from that fullness by putting their trust in Jesus. It can be so tempting as a church, as churches, to think we must always be doing something new, to think that we must always be looking for something new and innovative, updated ways to do church life together. Now, it's good for us to always have an eye to how we can improve our church life together, how we can teach and trust and celebrate and obey God's word more faithfully, to certainly be looking for how can we grow deeper into Christ and deeper into our fellowship together, But we're not called to innovate. And especially not if those innovations take our eyes in any way away from Jesus. And away from all of God's fullness in him. Because there is no more fullness out there to be had from anywhere else. God never has any more of himself to give to us than what he has already made available to us in Christ. And the Holy Spirit's whole ministry, his passion, is to illuminate and magnify that fullness in Christ and help us to enjoy all of its benefits. We have all of God in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Now, we have, have of course, been through challenges and changes as a church recently. And changes like the ones we've been through are not insignificant. They are not easy. But here is one thing. Here is perhaps the most important thing that has not and will never change. Christ is God with us. All that we have ever needed in the past was in him. All that we will ever need in the future is in him. If we will only keep looking to him and relying on him together, trusting him, following him, praying to him, serving and worshipping him, all will be well with his church. No matter what new trials and challenges the Lord might have in store for us around the corner, all will be well if we keep our eyes fixed on Christ together. And nothing pleases God more. Feel, Feel the pleasure of God in this. Nothing pleases God more than when his church recognizes and relies upon the supreme sufficiency of Jesus in all things. Because again, all of God's fullness was infinitely pleased to dwell in him. So Christ is God over us. Christ is God with us. 
Finally this morning, Christ is God for us. Christ is God for us. Verse 20. And here we dive perhaps even deeper into the very heart of why God was so pleased to have all of his fullness dwell and take on flesh in Christ. Verse 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It supremely pleased God the Father to make Christ the one through whom we could find peace with God. We must never think that Jesus somehow had to twist his Father's arm in order to rescue us. The cross is not some kind of divine blackmail going on within the Godhead. Jesus didn't thwart God's plans to punish us uh, by doing what you see many of the uh, heroes in the movies doing, you know, diving in front of the bullet at the very last second in order to protect his loved ones. When we come to God the Son to be forgiven, God the Father isn't in the background saying, oh, you were so lucky there, I almost had you. If only he hadn't have jumped in the way. No. John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God the Father could not be more for us than he is in Christ. He was infinitely pleased to provide a way to make peace with us. Infinitely pleased to open a way for us to be forgiven and cleansed and welcomed into his family through Christ. Now next time we're in Colossians, which I think is going to be at least in a fortnight's time, we're going to return to verse 20. We'll draw in verses 21 to 23. We'll explore more of what God has done to reconcile each one of us individually as Christians to himself. But for now, we're just going to focus for these last few minutes on how it is God is reconciling all things to himself through Christ. That's what Paul says here, isn't it? It's remarkable words. Reconciling all things. What Paul is promising here is nothing less than that the cosmos itself, creation itself, is one day going to be reconciled to God. Now in Genesis 3, we're told how creation suffered a devastating curse at the fall. Not only was it a tragedy for the human race, but it had devastating effects on all creatures and on the whole created order as well. Our sin resulted in the entire creation being subjected to futility. But there is hope. There is hope because, first of all, God knows that the world is broken and in need of rescue. God knows why the world is in the mess it's in. And unlike me, who is willing so often to turn a blind eye to many of the needed repair jobs that lie in front of me, God is not willing to allow his world to go on indefinitely suffering under death and decay. God has made a way for creation itself to be reconciled to him. But it's bound up in people, you and me, 
and others too, bound up in people first being reconciled to him. Romans 8 verse 19, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for his people. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. One day, all things will share the wonders of peace with God, but only because here and now, God has already made a way for people to find peace with him, making peace by the blood of his cross. So 2,000 years ago, Christ took on the flesh of his own creation in order to lay down his life on the cross. Christ died, the Bible tells us, for our sins to bring us to God. And one day, as a result, all things will be brought to God through him. It's why we sing at Christmas. Okay, don't scold me for bringing up a Christmas carol in January. It's why we sing at Christmas. No more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. Far as the curse is found, one day all things will be made new. All the effects of the curse will be no more. But it begins here and now with sinners being reconciled to God. And Christ's death has provided a way for all manner of people to come to God. So is this verse saying then that all people will one day be saved? Well, no, it's certainly not saying that. For some, this final reconciling of all things will simply be the final crushing defeat of their rebellion against God. All of those who are still God's enemies on that day will be vanquished. Justice will be served. The guilty will be punished and shut out in hell. No longer their sin able to harm and corrupt God's world. But what this verse does so clearly proclaim is the supreme saving power of Christ for sinners. His ableness to reconcile to himself all things assures us that the way has been cleared for anyone and everyone who chooses to trust in him and in his death to be saved. We can have peace with God and be reconciled to him today. And if you haven't found that yet yourself, if you haven't come to Christ for yourself, he invites you to come to him today through Jesus to be saved, to be reconciled to your creator, to find peace with God forever. And Christ is an all-sufficient saviour no matter the magnitude or the history of your sins. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Okay, finally now this morning, let's just zoom out for a moment and take in, take in one last sight of a running theme in these three verses. That running theme we started with, that quite incredibly, the church is the first fruits of this promised, reconciled new creation the church is where one can already see and experience the future reconciliation of all things on earth to God. It, it is a daunting privilege, isn't it, at first sight? 
But as Paul's words have so powerfully reminded us, Christ is supremely sufficient for all these things. We've seen he is God over us. He's God over us as Grace Church. God with us and God for us. He really is all that we as a church could ever need to know God and enjoy him and worship him forever. And he is all we need to be able to pass on this message of reconciliation to the desperately broken and perishing world in which we all still live. From the creation of all things, as we saw last week, to the redemption of our souls, Christ is Lord of all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ is Lord of all and all that we could ever need as your church is found in him. Lord, we pray this morning, would you help us to hold fast to Christ as our head, to know that all possible fullness dwells in him and that there is nothing more that we could ever need besides him to make us wholly acceptable to you both as individual believers and as a church together. And Lord Jesus Christ, we declare with great gladness and joy this morning, there is truly no one like you. All we have, all we need, and all we want is you. We love and adore you, Lord. In your gracious name, we praise you together. Amen.